when we're not on the same page about our values, we're living two separate lives. And so being able to get down to what does money mean for me and what does money mean for us and what does that mean for our future together is really what it's all about. It's not so much about the dollars and cents. It's about what the money represents and getting down to that core values. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Dr. Sonia Luter, owner of Enlight, and she's also the Director of Financial Health and Wellness at Texas Tech University School of Financial Planning. Dr. Luter founded Enlight, a research and training consultancy firm for financial planners and therapists. Enlight provides research design, data collection, statistical analysis interpretation, customized reports, and training programs for businesses. Their areas of focus include the psychology of financial planning, behavior management, and human capital issues. Sonia Luter serves as the inaugural director of financial health and wellness with Texas Tech University School of Financial Planning. She leads their curriculum and continuing education opportunities in the areas of financial psychology, financial therapy, and financial behavior. She holds degrees from Kansas State University and Texas Tech University in marriage and family therapy and financial planning. Her work is regularly featured in major news outlets such as the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Sonia draws upon decades of experience in academia to apply theory to practice. Her developmental work in financial therapy is summarized in her financial therapy, Theory, Research, and Practice with co-editors Drs. Brad Klontz and Christy Archuleta. Listen in for some great takeaways about the intersection of psychology, emotions, and money, and why Dr. Luter believes hiring a financial advisor can lead to happiness. Welcome to the show. This is Larry Sprung, and I have the distinct pleasure of being with Dr. Sonia Luter today. Thank you, and welcome to the show, Dr. Luter. Thank you so much, Larry. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great. We're doing this live and in person at Excel 2022, and thank you for doing this with us. What a treat. Yeah, it's been great. So I know a good deal about you, but I also want to have our audience and our listeners know about you. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. And I love how you just asked that question about who I am, not what I do, because I think it is a really big difference in terms of who I am as a person versus what I do in my day-to-day life. That's a great point. We don't want to be labeling ourselves by our careers because that's not who we are. That's what we do. Right. So perfect. Yes. So who I am is somebody who sees a need and meets a need. So I love this idea of figuring out what it is that would bring happiness to other people's life and finding a way to bring that to them. So I think that's really 
how I got to where I am. I went to college thinking I was going to be a speech pathologist, and I really wanted to work with deaf children, teaching them how to communicate with their hearing peers. And then I got to college and realized that involved a lot of science, (laughs) not my forte. So then I found my way into financial planning and so many different ways that we can help people with their finances all across the spectrum from the college student who's just barely struggling to make ends meet all the way up to the ultra wealthy. But then I found my way into therapy and wow, that was why really eye-opening as well to learn about particularly couples and the conflict they have related to money and how a lot of therapists really don't have a background in personal finances. So they're also struggling to connect the dots for the couples and have those conversations. And so I found my way into this creation of financial therapy, the combination of the personal finance with the therapy side of things. And that's where I think I fit the most and where I can meet the most needs. Amazing. I think that fits in a lot to what's going on and what's been talked about here at Excel and through Carson in terms of finding your freedom, right? All of that is kind of tied together. Absolutely. So can you tell us what kind of motivated you? I know you're here now, but what motivated you to become a PhD and a CFP? As you mentioned, I don't think that there are many of you out there in that realm. So what was the motivation behind going in that direction? Yeah. I also have a licensed marriage and family therapy certification. So I am pretty sure I am the only person (laughs) with those three certifications. And I love trying to figure out why and how we can make something better. So that was really the motivation for the PhD. I don't know that it's widely understood that a PhD is almost exclusively research training. Right. And that's what I wanted to do is figure out the answers to some of these really hard questions. When I started my PhD program, there wasn't anybody doing financial therapy in the research space. So that had opened up so many doors for me and for other people behind me as well as we've kind of entered into this area of research around why people do what they do with their money. But then the certified financial planner designation is so important too, because people want to know that you know what you're talking about with finances. So that's what led me to get that. There's a qualifying exam for a PhD program. I also don't think a lot of people know about this exam. And for me, that was far harder than the CFP exam. So for people out there who have taken the CFP exam, I would venture to say the PhD qualifying exam is just a little bit harder. Okay. A lot more stressful. I can tell you that for sure. And I would imagine both you smash them both together. It's probably not the easiest thing either. Yeah. Not a great idea to do them both at the same time. Yeah. So uh, one thing you talked about, I I know you talk about often is about addiction patterns and something that we've talked about many times on this show is mental health. It's Mm -hmm. something that's very important to me. I'm very proactive in that space. How do addiction patterns affect finances? I got to imagine there is an effect, but what is that impact there? Yeah. For people who maybe are not as familiar with the addiction cycle, I think it's probably important to review that real quick to where we have this emotional reaction. And when you say addiction, I think it's very common for people to think about alcohol addiction or drug addiction, but this extends far beyond either of that. I think I might have a chocolate addiction. There's an emotional (laughs) trigger, right? (laughs) I share it with a lot of people. 
this emotional trigger, whatever it is, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling bored. And so I think, oh, I really want that chocolate. And it's a craving that you just can't get rid of. It's obsessive. It takes over all of your thoughts. And then ultimately you lose control and you go ahead and you take that thing. And then you feel guilty about it because you said, oh, I'm not going to eat as much chocolate anymore or do whatever that thing is. And then you feel guilty. So you stop. And then another emotional trigger happens and you keep going around and around because you're trying to fill some sort of inner need for yourself. So is it the chocolate that you need? Probably not. Is it companionship? Maybe. Is it a breath of fresh air outside? So many things that this, but we're not meeting the need with that fix, that quick fix. And we see that with personal finances too, right? To where we're trying to meet maybe another person's standard or we are trying to keep up with Joneses or whatever the case may be. And then we see somebody who has the thing that we think we need to make us happier. Social media makes that super easy for us to where we think that everybody else is living this lifestyle that we must also have. So we give into it. And then we feel guilty about it. And then we stop and we start saving our money. We start living more responsibly, living to our goals. And then we see something else on social media or on the news or we're walking down the road. And then we start the whole cycle over again because we're not getting down to the core of what is it that I really need and what are my core values and how do I meet my core values? Right. So what I found it interesting, even though we talked about addiction, you mentioned chocolate, which many people would not correlate to necessarily like a bad thing. Right. So, mm-hmm. and the reality is addiction doesn't have to be. And I think what your story is showing also, it doesn't have to be drugs. It could be chocolate. It could even be exercise, right? People are addicted to exercise and that could be their outlet. Yeah. And I think that there's a happy medium in, in all of those, right? There's there's the fine line between not doing enough from a health perspective or otherwise and doing too much also. Right. And I think that relates to money as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Even an addiction of wanting to make other people happy, right? Sure. And, yeah. and constantly giving up your own needs for the sake of somebody else. Right. You see that with finances too. All, to the, where time, all the time. I don't want my children to suffer like I did, so I'm going to give them everything. Right. And that's not solving anything either. Not, not at all. It could actually cause a lot more problems than good, as you probably know yep. better than me. And I've often commented on how many times our role as an advisor, often part therapist. Now, I'm not a licensed therapist. So when I'm giving that kind of what I call quote unquote therapy, it's not a clinician like you are. But can you share why financial advisors need to understand the psychology of money and why that's so important? Yeah, I would like to take a time out and talk about the difference between therapy and psychology. And I think this can really help listeners understand what their role is. If you look at what psychology means, it's the study of the mind and psych or the ology part. The psych part means particularly as it relates to our emotions and our behaviors. If we put all of that together with money, we're talking about the study of the mind as it relates to our money emotions and our money behaviors. Okay. Just the study of therapy, thera, as the root means treatment. Right. And we're not asking financial planners to treat anything. We're asking them to understand the psychology 
a financial planning, the psychology of money. So we just need to recognize what's going on with the mind and being able to at least introduce the idea or recognize that you look really stressed right now. We should probably take a time out and address what's going on for you. Have another conversation beyond what our agenda items were for that particular day and address that underlying stress because when you're stressed, you're not listening to me. You're not going to remember what we talked about. Your mind is somewhere else. Right. So I think what I'm hearing is we're, we're using the wrong terminology. We really shouldn't be saying that we're part therapist because we're not. We're part psychologists to some degree or the psychology of the money really is what we should be saying. That's really the proper terminology, I would imagine. I agree. All right. Well, from today on, I will uh, amend that uh, that that statement, and I'm no longer unless you are going to be fact, part financial therapist, I guess, any longer. <laughs> you can certainly still be a financial therapist if you want to venture down that road of having some of those hard conversations and doing some of that treatment. Yeah, I think that would uh, require another degree. I don't know that I want to make that level of commitment, but we'll we'll see. We'll see. So, what percentage do you think, in, in your view, of people going to therapy? Do you think need an element of financial therapy as well? Or, you know, is there some kind of correlation there and you know, rationale between them being interrelated to some degree? Yeah. The way you asked the question out loud right there, I don't think you've read my study. I've done a study that answers this okay. exact question. Well, that's questions. what I wanted to ask you. Yes. Yeah. It's been a decade ago, so I suspect the numbers have changed just a little bit. But what we saw was that one third of the couples who were going to marriage and family therapy had some other financial issue that they wanted to discuss that was impacting their relationship. One third of couples who were going to financial planning, financial counseling, had some sort of marital issue that they also wanted to address. There's a huge overlap in terms of where people are going. They're struggling or they want to have conversations about the same things. It's just where they end up going, whether it's more on the therapy side or more on the financial side first, but definitely a very strong overlap between the two. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they're so interrelated and correlated? I think the answer is obvious that it's because it relates to our values. And when we're not on the same page about our values, we're living two separate lives. And so being able to get down to what does money mean for me and what does money mean for us and what does that mean for our future together is really what it's all about. It's not so much about the dollars and cents. It's about what the money represents and getting down to that core values. So do you think that the majority of financial advisors kind of promulgate that issue? Because I know one thing we've talked about a lot is the fact that many financial advisors, when working with a couple, they have a tendency to be drawn to one of the spouses over the other and address one over Mm -hmm. the other. And one thing that we're always very cognizant about when we work with families in our practice is when we see a spouse who's trying to answer questions for them collectively, we try to then go to the spouse that's not answering and try to get either affirmation that they're on board or if they feel differently, what those feelings are. So, I mean, do you see some degree those advisors that aren't doing that, are they really leading to that problem and helping that problem to become larger than it might be if they were doing things differently? I highly suspect so. And 
the world we live in now, that's so easy to avoid not going down that road to where you have the quieter spouse who maybe has different ideas, tends to be the female. I am putting a little bit of judgment on it, but research-wise, it would say that the female tends to be the more quiet during the financial planning meetings. And so why don't we integrate some of her voice and alternative communication methods. We have the option now with the virtual meetings to include whether it's the chats on the side or gathering information before or post meeting, much more than in the past where it was strictly that one in-person meeting for the quarter, for the year. We're having a lot more impersonal interactions with our clients than we have in the past. So I think there's a lot more opportunities to gather a more holistic voice for the couple and it would be a huge disservice to the couple to not integrate some of those alternative methods, particularly when you have the couple to where one spouse tends to do the talking on behalf of them. So are you suggesting that you should almost do separate meetings versus reinforcing it with the other spouse there? Is that more beneficial overall? No, no. I really like your approach, but I don't know that everybody's quite as comfortable like calling the other person out in the meeting. So with the virtual meetings, for instance, we can now have side conversations that wasn't always possible before. So both people are still sitting there. I'm still sitting there. But we can engage alternative communication methods. That's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, we've had situations where we've talked about like risk profiles and the Mm -hmm. husband would answer. And in this case in particular that I'm thinking of, it happens to be the husband answered and the wife didn't and she didn't seem on board. And we said, okay, well, he just took the score let's ask him to step out for a moment. You take it and let's see where they are. And in in actuality, he was at one end of the spectrum. She was at one end of the spectrum. And we decided as far as their overall family, we were going to meet in the middle and they felt comfortable with that. And I think they both felt listened to and heard, which was uh, hugely valuable. The husband was like, why are we going down this route? And the wife was didn't want to put up a barrier there. And she, you could tell by looking at her eyes that she was very thankful that we did that. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot of power in that. And I think we have to do that more as a profession and listen to everybody, all the stakeholders involved with those assets. Yes. And you could even take that a little bit further into more of a financial therapy route if you will, by engaging why is it that he's the primary financial decision maker for the family. And that usually ends up being some really interesting conversations. I had a couple, much like you're talking about, to where the husband did most of the talking. He kept track of the finances and they both just assumed that's the way it was always going to be until I asked them why they were doing it that way. And we talked about all of the household tasks and why she was doing some things and why he was doing some things. And they said, well, that's just the way it was when we were first married. And that was 12 years ago. Right. And that's just the way it's always been. I said, do you like it that way? Neither one of them liked it that way. <laughs> he wanted her to be more vocal about the finances. And just asking the question opens the door for maybe conversations that they've been wanting to have, but they didn't know how to yeah. start that conversation. In my household, we call it the division of labor. Like if there's a task, <laughs> some fall under my wife's division of labor and some are, which basically means her skill set. Yes. And then some fall under my heading for my skill set. For example, travel. I am awful at booking travel. I book it the wrong way, wrong day, wrong tickets. So in the division of labor, that's her. She's much better at that. So she does that. So I'm all for efficiencies and division of labor. 
but I'm just saying maybe you should revisit it every once in a while. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I wonder in that case, if it was more behavioral where they both saw their parents or what have you divide the labor that way. And they were like, Hey, this is the way it's got to be. So mm-hmm. how did that work out? Did they end up reshuffling things to some degree? They did. And they did it all on their own without me having to do anything. I just introduced the idea and they came back the next week and they, he had made out the spreadsheet and reviewed it with her. She knew where all of the money was going and she was going to take over the day-to-day finances. That's amazing. And that, that, shows, so amazing. that shows you people who are in therapy that are willing uh-huh. and and they're there for a reason and they're willing to accept and open to ideas and making change, which is fantastic. And and I'm sure you made a, a heck of a, a difference in their life and in their marriage going forward, for sure. I've heard you say that it's more elite to say anything with financial. How do you think financial therapy can help overall mental health? Yeah. Well, going back to what therapy seems to imply, that we have a problem mm-hmm. of some sort. And so when you add the word financial in front of it, financial seems to imply that you have wealth or maybe you have excess, that you're in a really good place. And so if we can just add the financial in front of the therapy part, people tend not to hear problems as much. They hear the good part of that, that I have something that I need to take care of that's powerful, that that brings me status. And yes, there's so many opportunities to integrate financial therapy in a world where anxiety continues to increase. I don't think it's started to go down yet since the start of the pandemic. Either stays right up there at about 30 to 35% of the population is struggling with symptoms of anxiety. And a lot of that's related to finances, inflation. I mean, gosh, pick up the newspaper and there's so many things to be anxious about. And the ability to meet some of those anxiety needs by adding financial in front of it opens the door to lots of people who wouldn't otherwise get. So, I mean, you bring up a good point, right? So you're saying 30% of the population since the pandemic has some form of anxiety, and many of those are around money. It's been two years, which in some ways is a very long time and in some ways is not a very long time. Are there things that people could be doing in order to start reducing without having to necessarily go to therapy, right? Are there things that they could be doing in the environment that we're in to kind of alleviate, maybe not fully, but alleviate some of that anxiety? Yeah, I think the first thing is just recognizing that you are anxious. And when you become more anxious, one of the things I talk a lot about is physiological stress because you can't trick physiological stress. It's what the lie detector tests are built off of. And you can easily test your own physiological stress at home with the thermometer. We all have thermometers now, the beauties of the pandemic, right? Everybody has five of them. And you can test your fingertips and see how cold they are. And if they, you're shooting for something above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you're getting anything below 75 in the 70 range, you're in a very high stress state. And then now, like now I can tell that my fingers are in the 70 degree range because I'm talking to you on a podcast. Okay. And so it stresses me out a little bit. I and then never you start- knew this, by the way. This is this is mind blowing. <laughs> See, you never, can trick people, never right? Knew this, that you can 
take yep. your fingertip temperature and have an idea of your level of anxiety. But Right. And the reason why that is, is because your body is physically preparing for the flight response. And so the blood is going back up into the heart to prepare for that right. physical activity of some sort, which leaves less blood in the fingertips. So I think that's really the first thing is to recognize when you are starting to get into that anxious state and being committed to not making any major financial decisions or having any major conversations during that time, because it's going to be very emotion focused. It's going to be very habit based. What have we done in the past, whether or not it worked or not? Right. That's just our default when sure. we're in that high stress state because we can't think about anything else. We're thinking about survival. Path of least and resistance. Absolutely. Yeah. So are there tips that besides, okay, so I take my, I, my fingertip temperature, I have an idea of whether I'm anxious or not. Are there things that I could be doing on a day-to-day basis to just kind of reduce that overall anxiety so that I don't have fingertips in the 70 degree range? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think keeping yourself centered around what brings you joy, what are your core values and asking yourself every morning, what am I doing today that aligns with my core values? And sure, we're going to do stuff that doesn't align with our core values from time to time, but really staying focused on a day-to-day basis, making sure the majority of your time aligns very clearly with what those core values are. And I say that as if everybody knows what their core values are. I'm not sure that everybody actually knows deep down what they value. They value education or they value honesty. Um, So I think that's really the first step is figuring out what it is that Go through that exercise, yeah. figure out your core values, stay true to that, and that will hopefully work towards reducing the anxiety. And we love talking about joy here. So the more joy we can bring people, the, the better off we are, yeah. all of us. Yeah. How do you think emotions and money are tied together, right? You talked about it a little bit just before regarding, hey, if you're in this high emotional state, you shouldn't really make these major decisions because you may not be making the one that you would normally make. You know, there, there's definitely a distinct correlation between the two. How else do you think that they are tied together uh, in terms of, you know, emotions and money? Kind of goes back to that addiction cycle, if you will, in terms of it's all interrelated to one another. The reason we have an emotional trigger. And so we do something as a result of that. And maybe it is something that's more physically oriented. Um, I I go for a five mile run. Like, right. That's an okay thing to do. And then I come home and I realize, well, I just went for a five mile run. I think I deserve this little treat over here. So I have the treat. And then I um, decide, oh, I, I just had that treat. I should probably figure out how I can get out of that cycle. So then you go and you purchase something to maybe to get you out of that state, whether that's if I just had an exercise bike at home, then maybe I could just do little pieces at a time. Right. You know, the rationalizing uh, things. Yeah, you're just rationalizing yeah. stuff that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's impossible to shut off the emotions. And I think that's the thing that people don't understand with their finances, just on the plane out here. As an example, I mean, 
we're in Vegas. So lots of conversations about money and how people were planning to spend their money once they got here. I was sitting to a very chatty passenger and hearing him talk about, well, we were really wanting to save for retirement, but we're on vacation. So we're just going to have fun. There you go. Rationalizing. I know. Right. So yes, very much impossible to disconnect the emotions from the financials. Yeah, money is so polarizing to the degree where it can bring your emotions literally from one end of the spectrum to the other very quickly, yes. depending upon what's happening around money. It could bring you joy or it could bring you anger or anywhere in between based upon what those events are. Yes. And it's amazing that it has that kind of control over people or effect on people, but mm-hmm. it does. And it's directly yeah. tied to emotions for sure. Yep. I think Bert said earlier, Bert White at Carson Group said earlier, he showed a slide that showed that although our confidence in things and our anxiety levels are higher than ever, our spending is higher than ever. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very telling sign. And going back to your example of addiction and using that, you know, to kind of offset those emotions, I think mm-hmm. is really a telling sign right there. Yeah. And you jump out of the circle of just letting your emotions dictate your behaviors by figuring out what it is at the core right? to bring you back into right. it. Well, the more we're talking about, I think you're right. I think if it's as somewhat easy or simple as defining those core values and having them and using them, I would argue that based upon what we're seeing today, that the vast majority of people don't have those core values line, lined up. And that's probably one of the major reasons uh, that we are where we are. Right. Yeah. So we talked about a little earlier and want to be a little bit more specific and intentional here. What is the importance spouses knowing all the finances? What is the benefit? We talked about talking to one spouse over another and why we should be talking to everybody. But what do you see as the benefit of having both spouses on board? Does it lower the anxiety? Does it help us as professionals, you know, advisors? What are the benefits out there for having everybody on the same page? Yeah. I mean, you hit on each of them. Okay. (laughs) So thank you for that. I would say it for sure helps the advisor because the couple is not going to follow your recommendations. They're not going to implement the action items. It doesn't align with both of their values. And so if we are designing this plan and the vocal spouse is like, yeah, yeah, this sounds really great. But the other spouse has just went, yeah, that's fine. But really, they don't agree with this financial plan. So they're going to go home and they're going to have an argument about it. And they're never going to implement what you spent this whole time devising this beautiful plan. And it's going to lead to resentment for the couple. They're arguing at home because they disagree about it. And they're comfortable having that conversation at home. And then some of that argument's going to trickle down and find its way into your office. And then... I mean, ultimately, you have an unhappy couple that either stays together and almost lives these two separate financial lives or they divorce and then they have the two separate financial lives. Are there any ways for advisors to I have like what I call spidey sense to that? situation Mm -hmm. where I could kind of tell most of the time, obviously, you know, I I can't say for certain a hundred percent of the time, but a lot of times I could tell by physical cues, eye contact, things like that. Are there any cues that you can share with us that would help other advisors kind of be able to keen in on situations where one spouse may not be on board with another? 
Yeah, definitely the lack of eye contact is an easy one to look for. I go back to the hand temperature. If you're meeting in person and you're shaking the couple's hands, you can really get a very quick idea in terms of who's with you okay. mentally and who's not. So we don't have to take out the uh, thermometer and test them no. while they're there? Okay. No, but you should test it at home okay. and get a good idea. Yeah, what it feels I'm going like to I'm try that because I, I never knew that before. So I will give that yep. a try. Yeah, it's a fun one. I do it all the time. My husband now, when he comes home, he'd be like, what are you stressed about? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really useful tool for couples. So the eye contact, the skin temperature, when you see one of them like daydreaming or looking off to the side, yeah. disengaging, Another really big one is they forget information or you have to repeat or you ask them, oh, Sally, what did you think about that? And they're like, oh, what were you asking about? Right. All of these signs that they're not mentally present. With yeah, you. I think it's so important if you want to have relationships with families long term and you know, that's what most of us want to do. Mm-hmm. You have to have both spouses on board for many different reasons, because then even if one spouse leaves you because they pass away, then you're that relationship's at risk. So why not invest the time, effort and energy to get to know both of them and have an equal relationship with them? So I think it just benefits everybody, it benefits us and our profession, it benefits the, the family also. So one of the things you wrote about is want to be happy, hire a financial advisor, right? Can you explain to our listeners why you wrote this and how that impacts people? Because there's a lot of folks out there that say the opposite. You don't need a financial advisor, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So I think it's very important and telling that you're taking a different stance than, than others, perhaps. Yeah, that was a really fun research project. I did this when I was with Herbers and Company. And... It really wasn't the goal of that particular study. We were just wanting to look at consumer trends in terms of what consumers wanted from a financial advisor. And when I was doing the analyses, I came across this really fascinating finding. And really what we saw was four different areas of happiness to where you are looking at a person's level of fulfillment, their intention, their feelings of making an impact, and their gratefulness. And people who had a financial advisor scored above average on all four of those areas. People without a financial advisor scored below average on all four of those areas. So very clear in terms of the happiness that a financial advisor brings. But then probably the more fascinating thing is where happiness appears to deviate the most. And that was at $1.2 million in assets. We saw that people with a financial advisor, it's a huge spike if you read the paper. It's easy to find if you just Google um, my name and happiness. And you see a huge spike in happiness for clients with an advisor at $1.2 million in assets. You see a huge decline. It's a V for the people without the financial advisor. So why is it the $1.2 million? Across the board, people with the advisor are happier, but that's really where you see the deviation. I think it's because that's really the point to where you need to make some tough decisions with your money. Like $1.2 million is a good amount. You could retire very comfortably on that, but... What else are you going to do at that point in time with the 1.2 million? You need to start making those hard decisions in terms of philanthropy or more vacations or giving it to the next generation. And without a financial advisor, it becomes harder. And 
it's like we're living without a roadmap and it causes more anxiety. So I think that's what we start to see at the 1.2 million. You can make your own hypotheses, but. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, things become a little more complicated uh, there. I don't know that folks from my area of the country in New York on Long Island or 1.2 million will be enough to <laughs> retire on if they want to retire there. I live in the Midwest. Yeah, but there are yeah. other parts of the country that that's certainly the case. Mm-hmm. And what do you think? Is it simply helping navigate them through that decision-making process? Or do you see other kind of signs in there where the advisor helps and kind of lowers the anxiety level for that couple as well? Well, a natural part of the financial planning process is identifying your goals. And that's a huge value that the financial advisor brings because without him or her helping guide that conversation in terms of here's what it would cost to take that vacation in 20 years. That's a lot of mental calculation to have to do on your own. And so I think just somebody else checking the numbers and helping you guide those conversations in terms of the things that you might like to do that align with your values is a pretty big thing. Somebody who's just asking the questions, particularly when it's the couples, once again, because I know I don't really have conversations at home about money. I think we do more than the average couple. But it's just not something that you spend time talking about on Friday evening. Right. There's plenty of other things. To because you don't want to bring anxiety into the house, right? right? That's you right. You want to do other things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, agreed. So do you think there's value in, you know, we talked about the core values being so important and it seems like there's a lack thereof, which is causing this anxiety. <laughs> Do you feel part of the advisor's role to introduce that to the couple and say, hey, do you have core values that you're utilizing to make your decisions? And if not, is is that something they should try to take a lead on and help walk them through? Yes. <laughs> Emphatically, yes. yes. Okay. Yes. We're asking them about their goals. Right. So why are we not asking about the values that drive the goals? Well, I feel like based upon those questions, we shouldn't even ask about the goals. We should ask about what their core values are. And if they yes. don't have an answer there, start there, right? Because if we don't have the core values, how do we even get to the goals? That's it. Do you think that the reason why sometimes when advisors are talking to the families and asking them about their goals, I know, I don't know about you if you've experienced this, but we've had times where people are like, you know, that is too far in the future. I can't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Is that not because they can't think about that or that, is that more because they don't have those core values defined? I would say it's the latter. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, we may be changing our processor and and opening up our conversations a little bit differently at Midland Financial. But so it's been a pleasure having you on our our show. And we end every show asking each of our guests the same question, because as I told you, we're all about joy. And that Mm -hmm. is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? I love morning walks. I live in the Midwest. And this morning I was able to take three and a half mile walk and you get to see the sunrise. I love the sights, the colors of the sunrise. You get to hear the birds singing. You get to smell the country roads. Only half of our listeners are going to know what that smells like. Um, But I just love everything about it. Really awakens all of the senses. Amazing. Great way to start the day. And listen, I appreciate you coming on. We're going to have all of your information in the show notes. But if people want to learn more about you, learn more about your studies, learn more about what you're doing these days and connect with you, what's the easiest and best place for them to do that? LinkedIn would be the absolute best place. Sonia Luter. 
Awesome. Well, listen, thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. We appreciate you and make it a great day. Thanks, Larry. I want to thank Dr. Sonia Luter for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Sonia focuses in on the intersection of money and therapy to help people have a better relationship with money. Emotions and money are tied together, and Sonia believes having a better understanding of both will lead to an improved life. Sonia and Enlight can be found across most social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.